morning we're going to get back in our study and we're going to get back going and um, Romans chapter 6 and then uh, it is good to see everybody this morning on the Sunday after New Year's and so forth hopefully you had a, a good weekend and uh, now it's back to the grindstone if you will so um, Romans chapter number 6 Romans 6 uh, we've, we've, we kind of introduced this chapter, this section, Romans 6, 7, and 8, and uh, we're going to get back in, and we're going to actually get into the section this morning, um, and, as, and it's a critical section, especially chapter 6, because of it dealing with uh, um, the identification truths that belong to us as believers, and uh, when you get saved... Um, God's, God is not just interested in saving you. He's interested in you living a life that he now gives to you. So as we get into it, and as we begin to kind of get our thinking back into Romans 6, Romans 6, 7, and 8, a lot of people stay, don't even get into this passage. They, they touch it on the, on the, cur, on the excursion. They, they get around it. They love verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you're not under law, but under grace. And they love the under law, not under law, under grace. Rah, 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 rah. And they miss the first part of that verse. The first part of that verse is, is the issue. Sin shall, not, sin shall not have dominion over you. See, that's, that honestly, in this section, is more, is, is more important than being under grace or under the law because of what we're talking about. Then they like to run over... To verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. They love that verse. Then they run into chapter 7, and they skip everything because they don't understand the, the Paul's illustration there of, for, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. For what I hate, that do I. They don't, they don't like that. So they run right over to, the, to verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And then they stop reading. Then they get into chapter 8, and they read verse 14. They read verse 15. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba. And they want to cry, Abba, Father. They like that. And then they drop all the way down to verse 35 in the end of the chapter, because they really like that. Problem is, is to understand any of that, what do you have to have? All the detail, see? And unfortunately, to adequately understand those verses, kind of key, kind of key verses we just looked at, you need to understand 6-1, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. You've got to get into the weeds to really appreciate. If I said, for sin shall not have dominion over you, okay, that's wonderful, but how does sin not have dominion over me? Why is that statement? So you've got to get into the mechanics. We're going to learn as we go through here that not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, that's the first five chapters, but we're now saved from the power of sin. And again, God isn't interested. Look back at chapter 5. Look at verse 21. God isn't interested in just giving you eternal life. He wants us to enjoy that life. 521, that as sin hath reigned unto grace, even so might, what, grace reign. You see that issue of reigning? He would rather you have in your life grace reign, that, 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 that word reigning, exercising dominion. He would rather us go put that on, our, in, on display. He's, yes, he does give us eternal life. He's not just interested in that. Now he's interested in a life that you can go and live because we, we're, look, look back up at verse 17, 517. For if by one man's offense death, what? Reigned by one. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign, notice, in life, by one, Jesus Christ. 
You see, we're not to live our lives as victims to our circumstances. We're not to live our lives in, in, in this victim state of woe is me. And, and, and it's unbelievable how many grace believers, how many believers live this way. We're, we're to live, we're not to, God didn't call us to be a victim, okay? He called us to be victorious. He called us to have, to, to not live under the tyranny of sin, but rather to, to be, well, 837, more than conquerors. And the only way you can get into that is to understand our identity, and these identity truths here. Again, we've, we learned in chapters 1 to 5 that, that we have a capacity to sin. That's an atom. That's, okay? But we also are going to learn that we have a capacity to not sin. And that's going to be in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we get into this, we'll start here in verse 3, a little review on verse 1 and 2 quickly. As we begin to learn about our identity and to live life in that identity today, we're going to have to do it really based on a couple questions. Okay? Question number one for you is, are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Okay, so you say, yes, I am. I trusted the shed blood of Christ, and I'm on my way. How do you know you're saved? How do you know that? Well, the verses tell me, right? Scripture tells me, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 3, right? Oh, right? Okay. So then the question, the next question then is, are you dead to sin? That's when everybody goes, wait a minute, what are you saying? You're not so sure about that, are you? Well, what does chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 say? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So just as you are 100% secure in your justification because the word says so, guess what? You should be 100% secure that you are what? Dead to sin because the scripture says so. Do you see where we're at here? And that's the, that's the struggle with everybody. Because what do we live in? This body up there in verse number uh, well, six, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. See, we got a, this body right here, but what does verse 1 and 2 tell us? That we are what? Dead to sin. I, the, our victory over sin has nothing to do with an inner capacity to not have the desire to sin or the intent to sin. You'll hear people say it, maybe you've said it, I don't want to, I'm going to live a good life because I don't want to sin. So you set up your own performance guidelines, and you know what? And by the way, you know what that does? It makes you feel good, doesn't it? Your issue about you being dead to sin, verse 2, has nothing to do with how you feel. Okay? It has... By the way, that's our fundamental problem. You know, we like to feel good. So Brian told me this morning, we were talking next to him, he goes, so today's the fire, fire and brimstone preaching, right? And I go, no, not, not really. But the thing is, is we think we have to do something to prove that we are what? That we can stop sinning in our life. We're dead to sin. But it's not anything about what's going on inside of you with you doing it. That's why Paul, verse 3, is going to say, know ye not. That's why he's going to say down in verse 6, knowing. Verse 9, knowing. Verse 11, likewise reckon. See, he's, he's going to begin to teach us these identity truths. 
And just as you know, without a shadow of doubt that you're justified, okay, we can have the same confidence that we are dead to sin in that manner as well, because what do the verses say we are? You notice it doesn't say sin is dead. Sin's alive. It's striving. It's the number one enemy. It says what? We are dead to it. No longer is it the no longer does it reign. No longer does it have tyranny and control in our lives because we have something different. See, we're going to learn this, and that's what's going to happen in verse three, four, and five. Really, down to verse eleven is we're going to learn the mechanics of how this works out. Notice verse one quickly here, the declaration. Here's the facts. What shall we say then? All right, so to the stuff we just learned in chapters 1 to 5, we're coming out of chapter 5 there, verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So Rick, if I still keep sinning, grace just keeps getting bigger, right? That's what the verse says. Well, what do we say to that, verse 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, the divine protest, God forbid, okay? No, man, don't you, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Notice the question just hits the nail on the head. You're not thinking about this properly. So what does he say, verse 3? Know ye not, see? He, he says, look, you got, you're not thinking about this. There's some information here that you need to have into your thinking. Know ye not, by the way, Notice the language. We'll just read a few verses here. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness. Do you see that death uh, some 30 times? He talks about death and dying and crucifying, being crucified. He talks about being baptized. He talks about burial. He talks about likeness. He talks about newness. He talks about walk. All this new language He's never said any of this to us as we've come in the first five chapters. Now we've got a new set of language on us. By the way, if you're there in verse 5, therefore ye have been planted together in the likeness of his death. He defines what the baptism is, is for you in verse 5. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. My point is, is notice how Paul, he says, look guys, you're dead to sin. Here's how this takes place. Here's this identification truth, because you and I, we're, we're going to come through this issue, and, it, and it's going to fall on this co-crucifixion, co-oneness that we have with Christ. Notice, if you will, there in verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, notice, by the glory of the Father. That issue there of the glory of the Father. He's not talking about the power to raise up the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? What's he talking about? Look at, finish the verse. Even so, we also, see? So what he's talking about is, do you see how the Father raised up the Son? And yeah, we just did, first five chapters. He's got the same intentions for you and I. He has the same intent for everyone in the Bible, in the Bible, <laughs> in the body. <laughs> okay? Not everybody in the Bible is going to have our resurrection, all right? In, in, the, in, in the body of Christ. Notice, even so we also should walk in the what? The newness, that like as Christ was raised. See that like as? the Hey, you see how he was raised? He's got the same plan to raise us up. His intention has always been to raise each and every one of us in this newness of life. 
And when you begin to think about that, you begin to realize, man, what a gracious God we have, a gracious Father. Because his plan was to do what? His plan wasn't just to give you eternal life. His plan was so that now you can come to the knowledge of the truth and do what? Have a life to go live and a walk to go live and an identity that you can go live and do something you could never do before. And that's that issue down there in verse 19. We were talking about it at the end of that verse. Servants to righteousness unto holiness. And see, now he has this ability to do something. You have the ability to do something you've never been able to do. That's why that word likeness is so critical in all of this. Look at verse 5, 6, 5. Planted. <laughs> For if we have been planted together. When you plant something in the ground, we're all the way back to Genesis 1 here, by the way. Remember when, when the Lord made the animal creation? And it was the cattle, and it was this, these guys, and after their kind, okay? So when, the big, when Leo the lion walks up, and Adam's going to name him, everybody in that cat family has what kind of DNA? The cat family. Follow me? So when he says planted, what DNA now do we have, spiritually speaking? Whose DNA do we now have? Christ's DNA, because we're in him. At, think about Adam. He's dirt man, made out of dirt, comes from the ground, planted. What By nature, we are the sons of Adam. We've learned that, chapter 5. And just as Adam, what Adam got and lost, we get lost in our humanity. We get the same, what the Lord gains, we gained. Okay? It's, ident it's complete. It's 100% planted. How do you know that? Together in the what? Likeness. Godliness. Godlikeness. Paul warns us about those that have the form of godliness but denying the power therein. See? You can look good, smell good, taste good. Well, we wouldn't eat on you. But you can do all that but, and not be who you're supposed to be. Likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. We, his like. Boy, you know what? That frees us from the bondage of sin. When life hits you, I mean, think about this. I know it's only the 3rd of January. Life's probably already dumped all over you. Okay. Because what does life like to do? Dump all over you. You know, you have a struggle. When that happens, what does that do to you? It strips everything away, except for one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul, look, look, look over at 2 Corinthians 12. Just, I, I think about this, and we're, I'm trying to get into the passage here. There's just so much to say to get you to think. By the way, we're going to work on verses 3 to 11 because that's the section here of how, the mechanics and how this works. And we're going to do this in like three parts because <laughs> I'm not going to get it all done in one shot. Uh, to, to add it, I don't want to run through this, but I don't want to be in it for six months either, okay? Look at 2 Corinthians 12. Look at verse number 9. Paul's got the thorn in the flesh there, verse 8. This thing I besought thee, the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul has this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Life's kind of tough for Paul right now. And what does it do? It stripped everything away. It stripped all the illusion of Paul and himself and his ability doing anything and accomplishing anything. So he goes to the Lord in weakness and says what? Help! Help! Right? And what does the Lord say? Hey, Paul, you need to remember something. My grace is sufficient for you. Who you are in me is enough. Now, watch Paul's response. Most gladly, therefore, 
will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know what the Lord did? He reminded Paul of Romans 6. Hey, Paul, you're, when you're begging for that to be removed from you, which is a natural thing for us to do, that's why Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7 on prayer issues, great verses, you know. Who else better to talk to the Father than the problems of life? But what is the answer you're looking for? And he said unto me. What does the word of God say? In this case, he said to Paul, Paul, you've got to remember my grace is sufficient. Go back to Romans 6. Paul, you need to remember Romans 6. You need to remember Romans 6, 7, and 8 and the identity truth. And you know what Paul says? Yep, you're right. Paul opens up the filing cabinet, pulls it out, and says, you know what? I'm going to enjoy the infirmity now. Well, what a radical way to think about that. Because what did he remember? He said, know ye not? Don't you know this? Likewise, you're, you're looking just like him. You know? That's free. That, you know what? That is very freeing. It also frees us up from that religious moniker of you need to be living for Christ and you need to be living for God. You know that God never says live, live for me? He says, I gave you my life. I gave you what you need. You have it. Now go live as who you are. You see, that's freeing. That isn't me over here trying to strive and do. That's, man, it is done. That's why that, look over at 2 Corinthians 5, because I know as soon as you say that, this verse comes into mind. But you've got to pay attention to this verse. If it doesn't come into your mind, it came into mine, okay? 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. That's as close to him saying, you need to live for me. But that's not what he's saying in that verse. It isn't. That's what the verse says. But what is he saying in the verse? He's saying, verse 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? A new creature. You've got to remember your identity verse, identification truths. We think a certain way. He died for everybody. You know what? My motivation, the love of Christ, is to now go live for him and who I am in him. Not over here doing it in my own religious activity. Do you follow that? That's critical in this. Go back to Romans 6. So the terminology here, buried, baptism, likeness, planted, verse 6, 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Uh-oh, old man, first time that term's used. What does that mean? Well, that's a reach back to Romans 5, verse 12, isn't it, about the stuff in Adam? Yeah. By the way, we're going to find out a new man is going to show up. If you got an old man, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, we just read, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new what? And you got a new creature, a new man. Do you know what that tells you? He didn't convert the old. He didn't renew the old. He did what with the old man? Verse 6. He killed him. And he made something new never seen before. I don't know if you've ever heard the story. I think Bob George is the one that tells it about the caterpillar and the butterfly. When the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and he comes out a butterfly, that's what he does, right? But we don't say that's a beautiful caterpillar. He didn't convert the old caterpillar that process produced a new creature, <laughs> literally. Follow that? That's, he didn't take your old, your old caterpillar and say, we're going to make it a beautiful new caterpillar. Now, 
caterpillars are pretty cool. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to them. They fit really well on the end of a fishing hook. But they don't say new caterpillar. We say what? A beautiful butterfly. He doesn't convert the old. He makes a new man, a new creature. And what that does, go back there to Romans 6 if you're not there, is that that introduces this co death, burial, and resurrection that we have. And that honestly is the answer to sin, is to recognize and value our co-death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. You'll hear people say, oh, he died alone on the Calvary and all that. In Israel's program, he did. But for you and I, you know what Paul says? He did not die alone. He died, and you died with him. And only Paul provides this information, by the way. The Lord's hanging there, and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm alone. Where did you go? You left me. You go back and read the Psalms where he quotes that from. You've left me. I'm not a man. I'm a worm. Where did you go? Paul comes on Romans 6, identification truths, and says, you know what? He didn't die alone. You died with him. New revelation about what was happening on and at Calvary and by Calvary. And I, that's a part of that wonderful thing I told you months ago, I guess now. A part of that much more doctrine that Paul is bringing into our edification. The much more. Okay? Now, we still have, go back to Romans 6. We still have this body. All right? What shall we say? Verse 2, God forbid, how shall that we are dead to sin live any longer therein? God forbid, the divine protest. Again, God is not interested in you making a promise to stop sinning, to live better, to live right, to get on the righteous path, you know. He's not interested in that at all. We have this body. But think about up there in verse 6, he calls it the body of sin. Over in Colossians 2, we'll get over there in a minute, it's the, 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 the this, he calls it, talks about the, what does he call it? I just had it. <laughs> the body of the sins of the flesh. We still have this body, but what this vessel is what sin used to exercise its tyranny and dominion over your life when you're in Adam. But now that you're in Christ, this vessel is no longer the vessel through which sin is going to exercise dominion and sin's authority over you, His, its authority to use your body, this vessel, has been crucified. It's been destroyed, 6-6. Six, six. It's crucified with him that the body of sin might be what? Destroyed. He didn't yank you out of your body. You need your body, the vehicle, to tote your inner man around. He says, no, we'll leave you there. But its ability to run and rule the roost has been canceled. <laughs> Cancel culture. Canceled. Boom. Right? It's done. It's over. So verse 1, what do, what do we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. All right? God says the divine protest, no. I'm not interested in you making a promise to not sin. I'm not interested in you trying to walk the straight and narrow. What I'm interested in is, verse 3, know ye not. And that's what we're going to learn, is that we already, we are already a new creature, a new man. So that we now have the capacity 
to not sin because of who we are in Christ. So what do we have to do? Know ye not. We have to learn about that. We have to recognize it. Follow, you, 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 okay? Then he says, verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now you've got a big elephant there. Do you, do you see the word baptism? That's the big elephant in the room in this passage. The vast majority of believers, when they read this passage... And they think of that word baptism. Do you know what do they usually think of? Water baptism. And they preach a doctrine called baptism, baptismal regeneration. And they come in and they begin to, to talk and to think about things. And instantly when they read that word baptism, you know what they say? Water. <laughs> okay? But there's a problem with that. Come back over to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. When you read the term baptism in Scripture, you cannot honestly always say water. If you look at Matthew 3, verse 11, Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist is speaking. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Okay, so what kind of baptism does John have? Water baptism. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. All right, so who is that? That's the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. He shall baptize you with what? With who? Is that a water baptism or is that a Holy Ghost baptism? That's a Holy Ghost. And with what? What kind of baptismal is that? That's a fire one. The water can't put the fire out. Now, if you need to understand what the fire is, verse 12 will explain that. That's that second issue of the second coming, where he comes back in fire and flaming uh, fire, taking vengeance on them who knew not God. But you see how in one verse, that issue of baptism has three monikers to it. Water, Holy Ghost, and fire. Now think about when John the Baptist comes, he's back up there in verse 6, and we're baptized of him in, in John confessing their sins. When John is baptizing these guys, what is he doing? Do you, rem, do you think about what he was what he's doing? He's identifying a group of people, isn't he? He's coming along and saying, this group of people is the group that trust and believe the Messiah. They are believing the gospel of the kingdom. I'm looking for a verse, sorry, in Luke. It sits right there on that page, but it's not there. In Luke 7, run over to Luke 7, hold on to Matthew 3. Because this issue about baptism is an issue. Baptism in Scripture is a means, is a way of identifying people. Okay? It's an identification term. Look at Luke 7, verse 29. And all the people that heard him, and that's John the Baptist, and the publicans justified God how? How did they declare God to be right in what he was doing? Being what? Baptized with the baptism of John. So in order for that Jew to become a part of the little flock, the believing remnant, what did they have to do? They had to be baptized of John's baptism, which was what kind of baptism? Water baptism. So when the Lord water baptized people, and he does, when Peter and the boys do, what are they doing? They're doing John's baptism. That's what they're performing. Okay? What did that then do? It identified the group of believers, didn't it? 
because look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. All right, how did they do that? Being not baptized. You see how baptism is an issue of identification. Come over to, to Acts. Acts chapter 1. Matthew 3.11 says, and John is out there baptizing, identifying that little flock, that group of believers out of the nation of Israel. The Lord will later look at the nation there, and he'll say, Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He looks over at those Pharisees and says, The Father's taking the kingdom from you and giving it to a nation, that little flock. Okay? Why? Because they've been identified as the what? The believers. The true Israel of God, Paul calls them. Acts chapter 1. In Acts 1, you have that little flock. The Lord is about to ascend in the next chapter. They are growing and learning. Uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, he ascends. There, verse, eight, uh, verse 9, 10, and 11. Verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120, men and brethren, the scriptures must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. And Peter's going to, he's the leader, he takes charge. They, they select out Matthias to be the 12th apostle. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Verse, well, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utter. When they're filled with the Holy Ghost, what did Matthew 3.11 say was going to, what was that? They were baptized with the what? With the Holy Ghost. They're identified, again now, as, as people who are not only a part of that little flock, but now they have a what? Now they have the Holy Ghost. So if you look down there, every verse 5 there, uh, um, there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation. Now when they, this was noised abroad and the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak, they're out there doing the ministry they're out there able to speak in tongues. They're, they're identified, okay? If you look over at verse 14, Peter's going to stand up again, talk to the men of Israel. Verse 15, for these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour. See, what it, what, they're out there speaking in tongues. They think they're off their rocker, drunk off, you know, too, too much of the captain, okay? Peter says, no. Verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. What these guys are doing are fulfilling Joel, Joel 3, Joel 2, Joel 3 over there. And you know what? Speaking in tongues identifies them as who? The believers. But also, now in verse 22, he's going to keep going, and he keeps preaching, right? And then he says over there, down in verse uh, 27... 28, 29, verse 29, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his scepter is with us under this sepulcher, is with, is with us unto this day. Verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the who? The Holy Ghost. He hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. You know what Peter's saying? You see us preaching and teaching in tongues. That's a signal that the, that the Lord is sitting where he's supposed to be. He's been exalted. He's been glorified. That's why verse 34, he says, Lord, sit on my right hand until I make thy foes. It's time for him. So the Holy Ghost coming. Matthew 3 is a baptism. What did it do? It identified the believing remnant in the next step in their ministry. But then in chapter 11 of chapter 3, verse 11, 
he says, a by fire. Well, what does verse, you're in Acts 2 there, verse 35 say? Until I make thy foes thy footstool, therefore let all the house of Israel know it surely that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord, he's the, it's the day of the Lord, judge coming back, ruling and making his foes, his enemies, his footstool. He's wiping them out. Christ, there's the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior. My point is, is baptism, come back to Romans 6 here. When you read baptism, you can't jump to water. And by the way, there is no water in the chapter at all. Well, how do you know that? Well, look at the passage. 6-4, 6-3. That so many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his what? His death. See that? Verse 4, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into what? Death. Verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his what? Death. You see, Paul defines baptism as something that is excluding water. When the Lord died, did they dunk him in the tank? You know, the baptismal. By the way, dunking is not biblical. Do you know how they, they baptized in Scripture? They sprinkled. They didn't dunk them. Well, John went down into Jordan and didn't. No, they go down in Jordan, and you know what he does? He pulls it up and sprinkles it on him. They didn't go, you know, hold on, it's going to get cold. <laughs> the Ethiopian, they go down, and he's, it's sprinkled on him. It's not dunked. See? So Paul defines it here as something that is excluding water. He's what? Planted. When. Because of that, what Paul is doing is he's saying this activity of, of our identification has nothing to do with human effort or any religious ceremony. This is all done how? By God, spiritually. That's why Ephesians 4 says how many baptisms are there? One. Ephesians 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 there. One baptism. Because we're talking about a spiritual baptism. A spiritual identification. By excluding water, by using the terms buried and planted, he says there's no water here. Come over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And just notice this issue. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. This passage is about the sign gifts, chapter 12, 13, and 14. But man, verse 12 is a wonderful verse. For as, as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is who? That is a great identification verse there. That is, you got all these different people, and what are we? One, where? In Christ. All these different personalities, skins, everything. And what are we? We're one, where? In Christ. So also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we have been all made to drink into one spirit. That's fantastic. That's the mechanics of you. The moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, guess what you were? You were baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. That's why when you come to Romans 6, Paul, some of that, know ye not, it's kind of like, you are already this. You just need to know about it. We need to educate you about it. The one, this is the one baptism. And the one doing the baptizing isn't John. It isn't the Lord. It's who? The Spirit. The, the mechanics, the, the one who is 
putting us into this new body, into this new identification, is God, the Holy Spirit. Come over to um, Colossians 2. Now we'll read that verse I was thinking about a minute ago. Colossians 2. See, when you talk about this issue here about baptism, it's identification. Aaron and his boys, they're in the priest. You go back and you look at the priest. I thought about going back to Exodus, but it's easier to see Matthew 3. How did they, what, did the, what, was the, one of the, what was the first thing they did to that priest? They cleanse him, don't they? They wash him down. They, go, they water baptize him. Israel, uh, Peter says to him, you will be a royal priesthood. What they do to the, they got to be what? Water baptized. That's a ceremony. It's a religious activity in Israel's case. Paul says, nope, no human effort, no religious at all. The Spirit did this to you. Colossians 2, you got to start in verse uh, 10. And ye are complete in him. That's uh, the Lord there, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Man, it, that's a wonderful verse. Boy, you just sit there and just dream about that verse. He's the head of all what? Principality and power. He's the head of all of the universe, the government. What rules and reigns and exercises dominion over. And he says, man, you're complete in that guy. You're not complete in the door holder, the bellhop, as dad calls him. That's an old term, by the way. You know, I watched a Jimmy Stewart movie the other night, and he used a couple of terms you haven't heard forever. I'm like, ooh, that was a good one. <laughs> you know, but uh, you're complete in him. If you're complete in him, are you lacking anything? No. So then what does God expect of you? Absolutely nothing. Because what? You're complete in who you are in Christ. So what is God expecting you to do? Nothing. He says that there's some service for us to go do. We'll get down in Romans 6 and see that. But why do we go do the service? Out of a heart, of, out of a grace motivation, don't we? Out of a heart of love and, and adoration and recognizing, look at what he did for me. He's not requiring me to do anything. He did it. So, man, how in the world should I not want to go and serve him and do? That's that Romans 12, that living sacrifice. That's that making that decision of, man, look at what he did for me. What did he do for you? He made you complete. What? I don't, usually what we do is, well, if that's, that's the case, man, I'm going to go here and watch the Alabama football game. I ain't going to do nothing, but, you know. By the way, they won, roll tide. Okay. Ohio State kind of snuck in there a little bit. I don't know. No. Okay. That's a joke, Paul. Relax over here. <laughs> no. And you look at that and you say, look at what he did for me. You know what? I'm going to do it for him. You see, folks, we're complete in him. That's, who, that's why Paul says, no, you're not. You've got to learn that. You've got to know this. Now, verse 11. In whom also, here's the mechanics of how this all works. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made how? Israel's circumcision on the eighth day was a religious ceremony. I know everybody says, oh, circumcision is for, you know, health reasons, baloney. It's a religious ceremony. No religious ceremony for you and I. It's made without hands. How? Who made this? Well, in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of who? Christ comes in there and he takes your, your inner man. He doesn't convert the old. What does he do? He's going to make a new thing. And he comes in there with that new guy and he cuts. Circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh. He cuts away 
that tyranny and that bondage that the body, that sin would have. That's why he calls it the body of the sins of the flesh. He cuts that thing away and he liberates you and sets you free from the dominion and the tyranny and the rule and the reign of sin in your life. He says you're free. Who did it? He did it. Verse 12. Buried with him in what? Baptism. Again, buried. Romans 6. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who raised him from the dead. The operation of God. The Father, Spirit baptism. He did it to us. He did it for us. And you know what? There's no water. There's... By the way, if there was water, what are we thinking about we have to do? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? Mini, 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 mo, pick a, pick a toe. Paul says, no. None of that. You're free. Now go back to Romans 6. See, we're not going to get out of verse 3 and 4, I can see. The passage has to do with how we are placed into Christ, how we are identified, how we, I said the mechanics. You ever go watch a mechanic work on a vehicle? Sometimes, right? You go and you look over their shoulder. You know, we're working on that old truck and we're on the YouTube, looking over the shoulder, right? So, because they know how to do stuff. I popped the hood on the Infinity the other day and I closed it right down. I'm like, I don't need this. You've got to have a PhD just to read the goofy stuff. My truck threw an engine code. I went and plugged in the OBD2 reader. And guess what I found out? I found out the code. I went to Google. I Googled the code. I went to AutoZone, bought the new part, and replaced it. Because it was easy to replace. <laughs> it wasn't in the motor. It was on the L. And you know what happened? Reset the code. Truck runs great. Mechanics. How does this work? How does this function? That's what we're talking about here. That's what Colossians 2 is dealing with. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is dealing with. Now, notice in verse 3 here, some, some points as to why there's no water here. Look at verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized, what's that next word? Into Jesus Christ. Verse 4, therefore we are buried with him by baptism. How? Into death. At the point of justification, you were baptized, you were identified where? Into him, into his death, into his burial, and into his resurrection. If we're into Christ, that indicates that we share with him all that he has. He didn't die alone, we died with him. He, his death is our death, his burial is is our burial, and his resurrection is our resurrection. That word into doesn't say unto. It says into. Now, again, if it's water, that means that you're going to, that means the only way that you got into Christ in order to share his death, burial, and resurrection was by water baptism. That's baptismal regeneration. That's what they teach. The problem is, is when he died, what did they, when he died, was, it, was he taken over and held underneath the water? No, he was on a tree, wasn't he? Calvary. When he was buried, did they go over there and hold him under the water? No, they took him down to the tomb and put him in the ground, didn't they? See, you, you have trouble when you bring in water. Look at verse 5. For we have been planted together in the, what? Likeness. There's the other issue. You got into Christ, 
into, now you've got likeness. Well, what was his likeness like? Likeness of his death. What did that death look like? Wasn't down at the ceremonial washing basin, fountain. It was done up on Golgotha's hill. Like you look at his death. By the way, what kind of death did he tell? Remember over there in Luke, he looks at those guys and he says, I've got to go get baptized of a baptism you can't have. Sharon. Well, what kind of baptism is that? It's a death baptism. It's a baptism where it's Luke 12. We're going to run out of time, but that's okay. Luke 12, in verse 5. I'm sorry, Luke 12, verse 50. Let's do that one. Luke 12, 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. Luke 12, 50. Luke 12, verse 50. And how am I straightway till it be accomplished? Well, let me ask you something. In Luke 12, verse 50, has the Lord already been water baptized? The answer is yes. John took care of that. So then what's he talking about here in verse 50? That he's got a baptism to be baptized with. To be, future. What's that? He's talking about Calvary. He's talking about going to Calvary. So when you come back here in 6.5 and he talks about the likeness of his death, there's not any likeness with, his, with water baptism. There is not even a similarity between much less a likeness to his baptism, water. If, again, if you make this water in, in Romans 6. Okay? Likeness, no. He, he says, hey, I got a baptism I got to go do still. Later on, he'll tell the guys, you can't do, you, you, what? Peter's like, yeah, I can. He goes, no, you can't. <laughs> Peter goes, yes, I can. He goes, no, you can't. <laughs> and Peter liked to argue, but his heart was in the right place. Go back to Romans 6. So you've got into, you've got likeness. Romans 6, again, verse 4 and verse 5. The issues here is, a, is spiritually. We're spiritually at the cross, not physically. He died over 2,000 years ago. You remember the day of your justification. Did you run back there and get, no, it happened right there, okay? The other point, point number four, is in verse five again, also in the likeness of his what? If you say that the baptism is water, you've got to put water in the resurrection as well. If you're going to put water into the passage. But the likeness of his resurrection, there's no water involved in that. The baptism is a spiritual baptism that is connected to his death, burial, and resurrection. And its issue is identification. And if you make this baptism water, you destroy the whole passage and you defy God himself because he did not put any water in the passage. You did because you've got a religious bent. There's no water here. It's all identification, okay? Now, we'll pick up verse 5, 6, say a few more about 3 and 4, I'm sure, and move on, hopefully. It's the goal, okay? Folks, you have the ability, you have the capacity to understand who you are and then go and enjoy life as who you are. You know, it's funny. People say, well, Rick, if you say that, they don't say just me. If you teach, keep sinning, and you don't do this and that, you're just letting people live any way they want to. You were, they were, people were living any way they want to already. Oh, that passage over there, and he goes, and, and, and sin was exceeding sinful. 
How does sin get exceedingly sinful? You're doing that already. See, no. He says, no, stop. God forbid. Pay attention to who you are. Go live and enjoy life that way. So when you sit and watch Alabama football or whatever you watch, you can do it and enjoy it and enjoy doing it because it's something to be enjoyed. Follow that? I hope you do. All right. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for the passage here. We thank you for the folks that have come out to study and to look into it and to see the details here and to rejoice that, we, that sin no longer has a dominion over us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. We'll see you back.